Okay, so this, this first reading that we've got from 2 Samuel, this is, this is the high point, or, or maybe, there's, maybe there's like two high points of the entire Old Testament. So uh, we know the story, right? So God begins his family, we could say, with Abram in Genesis chapter 12. So Abram, whose name changes to Abraham, which is how we all kind of know him to be. Abraham and Sarah, his wife, they eventually have a son. They named him Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob is kind of the favored son. He receives the blessing from Isaac. Jacob has 12 sons, and then his name is changed to Israel, right? So when we hear of the country Israel, the land of Israel, it's named after this guy, Israel and his 12 sons, that's broken up into 12 tribes, uh, each one named after one of the sons of, of uh, Jacob, of Israel. Um, anyway, but that, that doesn't happen until later in the story. So, so Jacob has these sons, and one of, there's a, this big rivalry, one of the sons is clearly the favorite of Jacob, of Israel, um, even though, you know, parents don't have favorites, but we all know that they actually do have favorites, right? Uh, and anyway, so the, the, the rest of the brothers, they hate Joseph, and so they sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, uh, which turns out to be like the best possible thing that could have happened to him because he saves the day. The entire family moves to Egypt. They all die, and then they end up being enslaved, right? And this is where Moses comes onto the scene with the burning bush, and he brings them with the ten plagues, and he brings them out, and they cross the, dry, the, the, the Red Sea on dry land. Then they're in the desert for 40 years. Uh, while they're there, God gives them the set of commandments, right? So this is, this is his family, and he wants to set them up for success. So he gives them a set of commandments so that if they follow those commandments, if they live how God tells them to live, then they can have this, this really unique relationship with God. Like, like he can be a father to them and they as a community can be a firstborn son for God. Right? It's this, this incredible thing, this opportunity that God gives to them. We see what happens is that they rebel against God. They don't, they don't follow the commandments. They, they break that covenant, that relationship that they have with him. Uh, Nonetheless, the Lord is faithful to them. He eventually brings them into the promised land, into Israel. And then once they're there, after a number of years, the people, they're, they're kind of settled into the land and they look around at other nations, other countries around them, and they see that they all have kings. And so they're looking around and they're like, well, we want to be like all of them. Even though God wants them to be different. God wants them to be unique, set apart. God wants to rule over them. They being rebellious against God, they say, well, we want to be like everybody else. And so they demand a king. Uh, Samuel knows that, uh, who's the, the guy who wrote, wrote these books, right? He knows that this isn't God's plan. So he says, no. And then God speaks to Samuel and he says, it's okay. You're, you're not the one that they're rejecting. They're rejecting me. Give them a king. And so he gives them a king, Saul. Saul turns out to be a bad king. He doesn't follow God's ways. He doesn't follow God's commands. He breaks, he does his own thing. Uh, Saul eventually is replaced by David, and that's the scene that we have here. David is anointed king, and so it says, In those days, all the tribes of Israel came to David and Hebron and said, Here we are, your bone and your flesh. Right? It's this, this incredible moment where all of God's family, right? they're all together, uh, the, the elders of the, the community, they're together, and they're, they're just like, Okay, David, you're the guy. You know? like, and they see in him that he's actually going to be a good king. The Bible tells us that the Lord looks at David and he sees a man after his own heart, that there's something within David that's different than King Saul. There's something within David that, that is set on glorifying God. Now we know, we know that ultimately David, he, he has his faults, he has his sins. 
He commits the sin of adultery. He commits the sin of murder. He commits sins out of pride. Uh, He kind of does his own thing. But each time that he sins, he has this unique quality that he repents of his sin, that he turns away. He has a conversion from his his, uh, sinful rebelliousness, and he turns back toward the Lord. And because of that, he has the Lord's favor. So anyway, so this this is this, this great moment. David is the king. And then, you know, of course, we know that from there, uh, there's a whole succession of kings. David's son, Solomon, becomes king when David dies. Solomon starts out really good as king, and then he really quickly falls off the map. He, he, just, he has a terrible fall from grace, uh, and he ends up being a bad king, a wicked king. And then from there, there's king after king after king after king after king. And most of the kings, if you read, like, for example, uh, the first and second book of Kings in the Bible, most of them are evil kings. They do unrighteous deeds in the sight of the Lord. Some do. Some bring about, uh, some bring about reform among God's people. They see that they're not following the ways of God. They're not following the commandments. And so they, they, they go about restoring God's people to his grace. But many of them, many of them just live bad, immoral lives. And it's this really sad thing. And, the, and so, in fact, the Old Testament ends with this, this sort of thing of, like, the people are brought off into exile, then they're kind of brought back into the land, but it's just sort of left with, like, what's going to happen to these people? Because they're just, it seems like they're incapable of following God's ways. They're incapable of living his commandments. Or if they're not incapable, they're at least insisting on just not doing it because they're so rebellious. So that's kind of how the Old Testament ends. Uh, in fact, uh, we mentioned this last week, our first reading was right at the end of the book, the last book of the Old Testament, the last prophet, excuse me, of the Old Testament, Malachi, where it talks about the day of the Lord is coming, the, the judgment of the Lord is coming. Uh, and, and so we, we got to be aware of what that judgment is going to look like. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, but, but then what happens? The Old Testament ends after the first and second book of Maccabees, and then the Gospel of Matthew begins. And the Gospel of Matthew, how does Matthew begin his Gospel? The Gospel of the genealogy of Jesus. That is the, the line of descendants. Jesus is a descendant of who? Of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew shows how Jesus' lineage goes all the way back to Abraham. In other words, how Jesus is a king, a descendant of David, who ultimately is a descendant of Abraham, about how all of this, even the, the good kings, the good rulers, the good leaders of God's people, and also the wicked and the evil ones, how it ultimately all leads to this one person, Jesus. And so what Matthew's trying to do is he's trying to show us that Jesus is the king of all and that he is the perfect king. David was a good king, but he still sinned and rebelled against the Lord. Even though he repented, he still did this. He's known to be a good king, sure. Jesus is a perfect king. He will not sin against the Lord, of course, because we know that he himself is God. This was, this was in our second reading, right? Uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him were created all things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, right? Like this is, this is who Jesus is. This is who our king is. He has come to rule, right? And to me, what was the fascinating thing is that at the end of all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus, this great, perfect king, the king of all, he always ends up at the same exact spot, which is on the cross. This is the fascinating thing. You know, as as I was praying with this passage this morning and, and all week long, the question is just like, how in the world 
did we get to this point? From, from the high point of David and all of, all of the tribes of Israel being united and like the golden age of God's people, Israel, his family, all the way down to this incredibly low point where not just anybody is crucified, but God's own son who was sent to rule over us is crucified. He dies the death of a slave. How did, how did we get here? And the answer that I just kind of keep coming back to is it's an incredibly long pattern of people breaking God's commandments. People refusing to be ruled by God. This, this is, and this is the thing. It's like, okay, we know, of course we know this as, as Christians in, in the year 2022. We know that Jesus, yes, he dies, but he rises from the dead. And, and in rising from the dead, he brings salvation to us. And so somehow he's at work in all of this in, in incredible, unforeseen ways. And, and so now all things are better. Except we know this too, that like just look around and see the world is, it seems like it's no better after Jesus died and rose from the dead. People are still committing terrible sins against God. People are still rebelling against God, refusing to follow his ways. Uh, in effect, like all of us, right? We're, we're not immune from sin. Sure, we've been baptized and we've received new life from the Lord and, and we have the gift of confession. Absolutely, we get to receive the Holy Eucharist, sure. But I know in my own life, I still commit sins every day. And I look around and I see, I see lots of people who just commit sins every day. Now, maybe, sure, there's, there's lesser sins and there's, there's graver sins, sure. But nonetheless, like, how, do, how are we at this point? Well, it's because we just simply refuse to be ruled by God. Jesus is the king of the universe. And you and I, we just kind of refuse to place ourselves under his kingship. So many times, you and I insist on being the king and queen of our own life. We say subtly, maybe without putting it into so many words, we say, Jesus, it's great that you're the king, but you're not going to rule over me. Or maybe some of us might, might say, well, no, like I, I, I place myself under, under the lordship of Jesus, sure, in most ways of my life, but this, this little area of my life, that, that one's for me. I'm not, I'm not opening the door to that area for the Lord. He, he can have most of my life, right? So I'm willing to mostly put myself under his kingship, but not, not this part of my life. But this is the thing, is, is that if we're truly going to be under the kingship of Jesus, his kingly rule has to be absolute. That is to say, it is all of me, or it is actually not any of me. If I'm reserving a part of my life that I'm not allowing Jesus to touch, that I'm not allowing his laws and the laws of the church, if I'm not allowing them to touch my life, then ultimately I'm not allowing any part of my life to be touched by Jesus because ultimately then I'm the one who just decides what is right and what is wrong. And if I'm deciding that, then sure, I might decide that some of the things that Jesus teaches are good and, and worthy of, 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 of me. And so like, yes, I give myself. But then I also get to decide, I don't think those ones are for me. And if, if that's what it is, then ultimately, I'm the final ruler of my life. I am the king of my life. And that's a problem. 
Because what happens? We actually see in the gospel that there are all kinds of people. Sure, we see the good thief at the end, but before that, what do we see? We see the religious rulers doing what? They're sneering at Jesus. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the chosen one, the Christ of God. Right? They're willing to let it come out of their lips that, that he's the Christ, but, but if he's the Christ, then he better do something about it. Right? He better, he better, right? And it's just like this, this, this mockery of him. Similarly, the soldiers, they jeered at him. Right, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Right, they're willing to say, like, no, you just got to prove it. Right, you just got to, you got to, what are you going to do for us lately, Jesus? Right, again, as though they're the ones who get to make the decision of whether Jesus is the king or not. The same thing, the evil thief, right? He's reviling him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Right, reviling Jesus, mocking him, jeering at him. However, whatever word you want to put at it, like, this is what happens when we. Don't let Jesus rule over our lives. When we don't place ourselves entirely under the kingship and the lordship of Jesus, is we end up mocking him and jeering at him and reviling him. And if that's the case, that's a great tragedy. Because what happens is then we end up having a lot of people who say that they're Christian, believe that they're Christian, but in fact are just fooling themselves. And I know this, that, that there are times in my life where I have to sort of check myself and let myself say, wait a minute, do I really, am I really willing to surrender this thing, whatever it is, to the Lord? And I think we all surely should really ask ourselves that question, those questions. When you, when you think about things like how to live in your marriages, do you consider the lordship of Jesus, his laws and the laws of his church? When you consider things like how to spend your free time or just how to live your day-to-day -day routine, do you consider that you're meant to be under the kingship of Jesus? When you consider how to spend your money or the ways, the different kinds of entertainment that you can take in, do you consider that maybe some of those ways are not actually fit for someone who's under the kingship of Jesus? When you're voting, do you consider that there are some ways of voting that actually don't fit in? And this isn't, this isn't meant to be a political thing, but what it is meant to be is it's meant to be like the, the, the reality that my role as someone who is under the authority of Jesus it, it means that he makes every decision for me. And that in everything that I do, I consult him and I consult his church. And if I'm not doing that, then that just means I've taken it upon myself to rule over my own life. I've made myself king or queen. And if that's the case, then he's not my king. And what happens if he's not my king? Well, we saw this in our first reading last week. The day is coming, the day of the Lord's judgment. He is going to judge, and it's coming blazing like an oven, when all the proud and all evildoers will be stubble. Those who set themselves up as the rulers of their own life, the day of the Lord is going to be something that burns them up. And we know this. We know people like this, that sure, they're not burning literally in front of us, but we know that on the inside, 
They're just burning with anger or they're, they're being consumed by this, like, I gotta do whatever I can to prove that the church doesn't know what she's talking about. I gotta do whatever I can to prove that the Bible is outdated. I gotta do whatever I can to prove that, that I don't have to follow all of God's commandments, right? And for those people, this is the Lord's judgment on them, that, that they're just being consumed by this and the judgment isn't going well. But for those who do what? Who fear the Lord's name, his judgment will be like the sun of justice rising with its healing rays. For those who place themselves entirely under the kingship of Jesus, it will be like this, this incredible thing where your entire being is healed. And this is what we see in the last thief. The one who on the cross is justly condemned, he says, but it's like he has this radical conversion right then and there where he sees Jesus for who he truly is, the king of the universe. And so he says, he cries out to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's as though he's saying, I tried to live in my own kingdom. I tried to live under my own lordship and it didn't work. It led me to this moment where I am justly condemned for my sins. But now, Jesus, I place myself under your rule, under your authority, and I cry out to you, remember me. For him, the kingship of Jesus brings about incredible healing because what happens? Jesus says, amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So I think we just have to sort of ask ourselves this question, each of us individually, where are you at in this? Jesus is the king of the universe, whether you believe it or not. And his judgment is coming, whether you believe it or not. For some of us, the day of the Lord, that his judgment is going to burn and consume us. And in fact, it's already burning and consuming us within. But for those who place themselves entirely under the kingship of Jesus, his day is coming, and that day is going to be incredibly healing, so powerful. And so wherever we're at, whether, whether we're mostly under his kingship, whether we're willing to place ourselves entirely under his kingship, or whether we're far off, the big invitation as we announce him and live in him and glorify him as the king of the universe is to say, how can I, how can I walk? How can I step closer and closer and closer to place myself entirely under him so that by the time his judgment does come, I can hear those glorious words that the good thief heard. Today, you will be with me in paradise.